We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look here at um, uh, Proverbs 13 that Charles read to you. And let me just give you a kind of a intro as to what this text is about. I, I had a fellow a number of weeks ago share a story with me. He said, my family and I, when we travel, we take Denton Bible, uh, you remember CDs? He said, we take CDs with us and uh, we listen to them. And so he said, uh, whenever we go to any place, all the family will pile in, we head off and we put on Denton Bible and we hear the voice of Charles Stolfus, welcome to the uh, media ministry of Denton Bible Church. The pastor is Tom Nelson. So we'll listen to that. And then we may go out the next day and we'll put on a, another CD. Welcome to the tape ministry of Denton Bible Church. The minister is Tom Nelson. So we'll listen to this, all of our family. And we've been doing it for, for years. And he said, I want you to know, we went out west a while back and we pulled, he said, into a place and went out and get something to eat. And as we were sitting there, he said, I have a, a son whose special needs, he is a autistic, kind of a high-functioning autistic child. And I said to him, my boy, I said, you want to lead us in a word of prayer? He said, yep. And so we bowed and he prayed. Welcome to the ministry of Denton Bible Church. The pastor this morning is Tom Nelson. Amen. <laughs> And he said, I was encouraged to know that somebody's listening close to what y'all do. And I tell you, I, uh, I said to him, I said, you know, that's what a pastor wants is people that listen so close that the word of God becomes part of their everyday conversation. And I said, that's your boy. Well, that's kind of what this text is about is the total integration of life by the Bible. And so pick it up here in verse 16 of chapter 13, a very obvious kind of a statement. This text here doesn't give you uh, a lot of direction for a holy life, simply. It lets you identify with the eyes of God those that are doing it right and those that are doing it wrong. Let me ask you, in our culture, can you see two people side by side, one a great follower of, of God through his son, Jesus Christ, and another who scorns all manner of truth. Can you look at them side by side and our culture immediately pick out who's the good guy? You really can't. That's how come you get votes that are 51, 49. All right. You, sometimes you can't. You've got to have the eyes of God because uh, good guys show up later on to be blessed. Bad guys show up later on to be cursed. So you need time. But the eyes of God can help you, uh, it can help you uh, nip it in the bud before you get there, can show you who's who. And so in verse 16, it says, every prudent man acts with knowledge. Prudence is a term that means moral discretion. It used to be a great title that you would name a kid. It came to be the same today as a goody-goody. And so, matter of fact, a lot of the Puritans would name their daughters prudence. And it means that you, a prude is not considered a compliment today, but it used to be. A prude is somebody that has a sense 
But that is wrong, and that is right, and I will choose the right way. All right? And so every prudent man is prudent because he acts with knowledge. Now, what do you think the knowledge is it's talking about? It's talking about the Bible. That before that man or that woman says it or does it or reacts to it, they, like Paul said, uh, how did he say it? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may judge what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect or biblical, that we are to be restrained and we are to be uh, to have a bit of moral acumen, that that isn't to be done. All right. That's what it means to be prudent. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word here for prudent, believe it or not, the word arum, it means naked. Isn't that strange? Uh, whenever you're running around naked, write this down, okay? You're, you feel very vulnerable. Would you agree with that? You feel very vulnerable. You have nothing to defend yourself. You ever had any naked dreams where you're like in a shopping center naked or anything like that? Don't be, don't be shy, okay? Am I the only one that has them dreams? <laughs> and you all, I'm all, and you, you're the only guy that knows it. Everybody else is just walking by you and you're just scared to death if somebody sees that I'm naked. It's a terrible thing, okay? And so that's what the word is, that a prudent man is a man that knows I'm vulnerable out there. I can crater my life. I can ruin everything if I make continual bad moral decisions. Not whether you go to SMU or Rice or where you work at LTV or, or you know, Andrews, but whether I do right or wrong, that you're in trouble. So every vulnerable man acts with knowledge. You remember a fellow named Joseph that Potiphar's wife said, lie with me. And Joseph said, how can I do this great sin against God? No, I will not. Question, did the house of Potiphar, were they believers in monotheism and the one true God? No, they were not. Joseph didn't care. This is the right way. Does my culture believe in adultery? Pretty much. But I'm not going to do that. That's why whenever we dedicate these kids, I told the first group of kids, I said, uh, well, the kids weren't listening, but the parents that were right here, I said, you better teach those kids how to rebel. You dig? In the day that we're in, the culture will not raise you. You better teach them to rebel and to go with God. And so that is why prudent men are prudent, is that they have a Bible. Later on in Proverbs, it'll say, where there is no vision or prophetic revelation, people are unrestrained. It was Rousseau that put forth the idea of the, the uh, oh, what did he call him? The noble savage. That if you'll take, he felt that if you will, the problems with men were the rules of society, the rules of sexuality, and the rules fostered by the church. That that's what cramped them. If you could remove all the rules men would inherently do what was right. Y'all believe that? Anybody here in the 60s? If it feels good, do it. That was the 60s. Uh, hang on just a second. 
he was the one that fostered that idea of the noble savage. He had a friend later on, a follower, whose name wasn't a friend, he was a follower. His name was Gauguin. And Gauguin was a follower of Rousseau that we needed to abandon all the structure of society and let man be naturally good. That Catholicism had imposed the idea of guilt. He's naturally good. His friend, Paul Gauguin, went to Tahiti, left his wife and kids and went away to be back to nature. And before he tried to kill himself, he did a piece of art where you saw on one end a very beautiful Tahitian girl, and then on the very other end of the art, you saw an old woman preparing to die. And in the middle, they were being viewed by a bird that had no counterpart in nature. That you go from birth to beauty to age to death and nobody cares. Gauguin. And so, the rest of the verse says, prudent men act with knowledge, but a fool, he displays folly. The Hebrew word display is a word used for a marketer that puts all his wares out front and lets you see them. That a fool, in time, you're going to pick him out. Matter of fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, a fool is recognized as a fool when he walks down the road. You can spot him. My son, who's a Fort Worth policeman, he says he goes out on a house call sometimes, and he'll look at this house, and he'll look at those kids. And he said, I'll see three kids, all with different last names. I'll see a father that I don't see. He ain't there. And I see a mother trying to take charge and make ends meet. And he said, I always think to myself, I ought to just arrest these kids now because they're coming my way. And so be encouraged. Okay. A fool displays folly. Point. Men have self-control because men have a Bible. Men display folly, criminal behavior, injurious behavior, embarrassing behavior, because they have no final absolute for what is true. Would you say that I need to preach this to Congress? Yeah. Kings governed by wisdom. God said to Israel, if they obeyed the law, you will have peace in the country and you will have peace in the city. You won't have people killing each other. And so, as soon as I get invited, I'm going to preach this. All right. Verse 17. He now looks at another aspect of truth. The one who conveys the truth to others. Truth is not given simply for your own personal edification. God gave truth to Israel that they could be a priest to the nations. If you wanted to know who God was, Queen of Sheba, you went to Solomon, and he would tell you. King of the Ammonites, you went to David, and he would tell you. Uh, Assyrians, you came to Hezekiah, and he would tell you. And so, Israel was to be a blessing to the world. In verse 17, a wicked messenger, however, he falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. Now, the obvious truth is 
is that when a king gives a message to a ambassador, it has to be communicated truly. He cannot change it. Have any of you have a job where you have to trust people under you to get done what you tell them and they don't get it done? It says, like smoke to the eyes and vinegar to the teeth is the fool that miscommunicates a message. When you trust somebody and they drop the ball on you. Well, that's the obvious deal here. Whenever a king gives a message, it better not have a wicked messenger that misinterprets that message. There was a fellow back in the Revolutionary War that was one of the finest generals we had, fought at the Battle of Ticonderoga, was elevated by Washington, one of Washington's closest guys. His name was Benedict Arnold. And Benedict felt that he wasn't given the uh, praise he should have been, and he wasn't given the financial remuneration he felt was promised him. And he also had a nagging wife, but I'll move on about that. And so he made a deal with the British government that he would give them information if they would remunerate him and if they would elevate him in the British Army. And he did. At West Point, where you oversaw the Hudson River, what would come into the country there in New York, that's where they put the... Uh, mechanical college of West Point and uh, the engineering school that trains our leaders. And there at West Point, they put a chain to go across the Hudson River. It was so enormous, they would have to ferry it out with boats and then attach it to the other shore. And that way, if a boat came through when that chain was just below the surface, you, they didn't know it, but they would take away the bottom of their ship and it would sink them. And so Benedict Arnold knew when the placement of the chain would be. He sent word to a British warship that this is when it would be. Put the letter in a guy's employ to carry. The fellow put it in his boot. We discovered him and we hung him. And Benedict escaped and he got away, went and uh, got to England. And his life went downhill because the English wouldn't trust him. And you know, that's a great name to be named. There was a pope once named Benedict. Bene dictum means a good word. Isn't that a good name? I've never dedicated a Benedict. Nobody wants that name. He brought trouble to his name. As a matter of fact, when I was at West Point once, I was speaking there and they had busts of all the Revolutionary War generals. They had Schuyler, they had Gates. And then they had one that wasn't in the alcove. And underneath it, it said, B. Arnold. And they took his statue. And so, and there's another name that's a great name from the Bible. It means to the praise of Yah, Yahweh. It's pronounced Judas. I've never dedicated a Judas. Both of them were betrayers. Benedict Arnold and Judas Iscariot. And so, uh, there's a very obvious truth here about being faithful, but there is a larger sense of truth that those who know the truth, verse 16, those that convey the truth, verse 17, must be faithful to the word of the king. Remember how the last verse of the law in Deuteronomy 
is the last verse in Revelation 22. You add to this or you take away from this and God will deal with you if you mess with his word. And so the Apostle Paul would say, let a man consider us in this way as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The truth of God, the Trinity, and the gospel can't be pertained by men on their own vantage point. They must be communicated to. He said, consider us as, as messengers of the mysteries of God. That is our job to make known to you what men can't know unless God tells them. Paul said, I presume to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whoever annuls the least of these to teach others shall be least in the kingdom of heaven. Preach the word, nothing else, nothing less, nothing more. Do not add to his word, Proverbs 30, lest God prove you a liar. That's when you study history. That is the, I would say if I wrote a book on history, I would put that as the uh, bottom line of the book. Do not add to his word, lest history prove you a liar. Could I preach that from the U.S.? You change my word, and I will prove you to be committing folly. And so that's the reason, basically. The reason that you are here is because, as Paul said, uh, let among you become stupid that he might become wise. That's my favorite verse. Meaning, if you're going to purport to handle the truth, you better admit first that you're an idiot. Did I hear my wife amen? I think she did right there. You had better realize if you're going to be a pastor or a teacher or whatever, you've got nothing to say. If you want to talk about God, if you want to talk about, you know, math or science or whatever, you can study and still be an idiot and communicate. But if you're going to talk about God, the soul, right, wrong, heaven, and hell, and salvation, and sin, then you better know that you know nothing and become wise. That's why you're here is because I'm an idiot and I've got nothing to say about anything except what God says. Amen. And that's why if you leave Denton and you go to some liberal church, the saints of the glory barn tabernacle of the lady of the culvert somewhere, all right, I'm going to find you and I'm going to kill you. Okay. <laughs> Let's continue in verse 18. In verse 18, uh, here's the guy that rejects divine authority. Poverty and shame will come to him who neglects discipline. Poverty is because you neglect certain virtues. Shame is because you indulge certain vices and it will show up on you. Let me ask you, are there actors and performers out there that have brought great shame to their name? Yes, there are. I hate to say it, but the funniest guy I thought that ever performed was Bill Cosby. I remember one time we were on a ski retreat and Teresa and myself and our boys went up on the bus up to, to a 
Colorado, and we stopped off at this truck stop late at night. Everybody, go to the bathroom, do what you have to do. And my son went in there. He was just a little guy with one of those headsets you'd put on with a little tape recorder, you know, pushing. And he went in, got a cassette. Okay, he got a cassette of Bill Cosby. And I listened to my son listening for the first time. And I would hear on his headset, hey, 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 fat Albert. And I would watch Ben start laughing until the tears came down his eyes, laughing at his first time to listen to Bill Cosby. And now I can't quote him. And so same with certain athletes, same with certain politicians. You can't quote them because they got shamed. In verse 18, but he that regards reproof, he will be honored because that guy regards reproof because he's teachable, because he is humble, he is yielded. In other words, he listens to biblical admonitions because he's convinced that he doesn't know everything. Amen. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline drives it from him. Man left to himself is a natural born atheist and will do what he wants to do in light of what anybody says. And so this is where honor comes from is your recognition that you need guidance. Um, I have a grandson named Jake, and he is a sweet little feller. I've got six grandkids, and they're all good kids. This one is down in Keller, and his teacher has sent my son John and his wife Jenny at times just little notices about Jake. And the first time she sent one, she said we were playing something like musical chairs where all the kids were going around walking, and Jake's best buddy got a stomach ache and had to sit out and sit along the wall. And she said, Jake peeled off and just went and sat beside him. And she let us know about that. She, she said, I want you to know this kid did that. She was proud of that. Was Jake good in math? No Nelson is good in math. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Because you always have the gazentas and the timeses and things, which sounded good. The teacher wasn't complimenting him about his geology or his geography. He's a smart kid, but she, didn't, she never compliments him. That she complimented because he had to make a choice. She has also sent word to John that he is the most compliant of students. She loves teaching him because he's listening. As a matter of fact, he said that he went to the lunchroom. You remember in the, when you were in high school, junior high, elementary, what was the noisiest place in the, in the school? The lunchroom. Now it's the quietest place. Do you know why? Everybody's flipping her phone. And my grandson just stood up one time and he said, does anybody want to talk? So what do you say? Let's do what only humans can do, all right? On another occasion, we'll, we'll just stay here a while, okay? On another occasion, not that long ago, the teacher sent a note saying that uh, they told the kids after lunch, clean up around your area. 
so we can make the place presentable. Do you, do you think junior high kids do that? No, they'd take off. And so the teachers have to do what wasn't done. And she said, we were cleaning up and I looked and there was Jake. And he was with all the teachers and he's working, picking up stuff, putting it in the trash. No one asked him, no one said anything. He picked up his cut table and then he would pick up everybody else's. And so she sent word, this is who that kid is. Uh, I think God delights in the same things. The Bible says Jesus continued in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Everybody was talking. Have you seen Jesus Josephson? That would have been his name. All right. Jesus, son of Joseph. Have you seen that boy? Man, that's something. Well, keep looking here in verse 19. Here's why a person will discipline themselves. Because desire realized is sweet to the soul. The reason a guy will discipline himself and say no and say yes is because there is something glorious in front of him that he wants that he doesn't have. And that's why he will say no. When I was young, I told you last week, the biggest thing was you could get to college None of us could get to college. You had to work at doing something. My deal was football, and I worked, and I got a scholarship. There were only about 30 of us got scholarships, and there probably weren't 10 of us that graduated. And remember, I graduated last. Remember that story? Okay. And I graduated. It was sweet because no one had done that, and I had to work like crazy to get that done. When I went to Dallas Seminary, uh, I lost my grandfather. I lost my father while I was there. Lost the job I had at the church I was at. Helped to start Denton Bible. We bought a house. Uh, we had our second son born. Uh, what's his name? John. And I had to drive a hundred miles round trip every day for five summers. And I got it done. And... Uh, it was sweet just to get that done. I ran the, the Dallas White Rock Marathon. Have you ever done that? 26 miles, 385 yards. I wanted to finish. I wanted not to die. And I wanted to finish under four hours, and I did. I remember as I was, because at about mile 22, you have what's called the bear that gets on your back and you're carrying something, all right? And you see your life, you see yourself as a little boy, then you see yourself as an older boy, your life flashes before you. And about the last mile, I'm turning the corner <sighs> and they've got this Highland bagpiper out playing Amazing Grace. I thought I was dead, <laughs> but I wasn't. And I continued, and there was my wife, my kids, old Mel was there, and it was sweet. So if you go in my office, I've got my finishing deal up in 358, the White Rock Marathon. And that's the way life is. It is sweet to have something that you don't naturally have, and you do whatever you can to get it. I remember when we started Denton Bible, we, had, uh, we raised money to buy 3.4 acres this way, and it was so overgrown with briars and hackberries that we would get out 
at 8 o'clock to 12 o'clock, and the men would cut them down, put them on a flatbed, take it to the dump, and dump it. And we slowly and surely got that thing cleared. And then we got the money together, and we, I can go to the Summerall Center and show you every spot in that place where I knew who was putting the brick down, the insulation down. Uh, I can show you where me and Jim Hill, are you in here, Hill? I don't think, I think it goes to the Lutheran church. Okay. <laughs> but we put up a piece of sheetrock at an angle and we put 37 pounds of nails in that thing. And I can tell you where we were. And up on the top floor, me and Robert Enzi, where we put in a piece of sheetrock, where we had to mud out this one down here and we got it done. And it was a sweet deal. And whenever I'm at my office over at Sonic, okay. And I look across the street and I go from the Summerall all the way down to here. I can tell you everything that got done. And you know, I always think it was worth it. Amen. It was worth it to do something that was bigger than we were. And so he says that in verse 19, desire realize is sweet, but to a fool, to want something that he has to sacrifice, it's an abomination. If you want to make your marriage good, you as a man are going to have to be a listener. You're going to have to be gentle. You're going to have to be uh, a servant. Wife, you're going to have to be respectful. Now that's the price. If you want a kid that is going to be normal or have a chance to be normal, you're going to have to do this and the kid's going to have to see that. You ever seen that verse in Proverbs that says, Better is a plate of vegetables and a house of peace than a fattened ox and a house of strife. I'm not going to have you raise your hand if you grew up in a house of strife. But if you did, the chances are that if you were a guy, you were waiting to turn 16 to get a license and get out of there. And if you were a girl, you were waiting for that guy at 16 with his license to come pick you up and get out of there. And so you're going to have to be, as a Christian parent, if you treat your mate lovingly in front of your kids, you can almost violate every other principle of child rearing and get away with it. But if you and your wife and mate are openly cutting, caustic, and the kids are itching to get out of that house to get some peace, I don't care how you homeschool them, how you do everything, uh, the kid's going to just itch in to get out of there and live a life that's different from yours. And so there's a price to be paid. And to a fool, he's not about to pay that price. He's kind of like Esau, that he will sell his birthright for a single meal. Spirituality means nothing to him. He'll do it. And so there's a price to be paid. And if you'll look there in verse 20, this is interesting. He that walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. When you're going to do verse 16 through verse 19, you're going to collect to yourself people just like you. Is that true? You're going to collect people just like you. Paul to the Corinthians, be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Or as Hayden Fry used to say to us at North Texas State University, when you sleep in the sewer, you're going to smell like 
fill in as you want right there. You're going to smell like a sewer. You run with those that you love, and you're going to collect a crowd around you of a certain kind of people. Well, if you summarize this text, here's what it said in verse 16. A man that is going to be morally excellent is going to have to be a man of the Bible. Number two, that man is going to have to be a man of faithfulness to God that he will not change the message. Number three, it has to be a man who is teachable. And the reason that he is disciplined is he knows that he is in desperate need of God. Number four, that man will sacrifice whatever he has to do. Excuse, my ear keeps coming off right here. Okay. Can anybody else there play their ear? Hang on. I didn't know if you could. I, no reason to show you that. but just, I've asked Kendall for a solo, but no, he won't give me one. And so for you to be something other than you are, you're going to have to say no to certain things and yes to certain things. Y'all know who Paul Bear Bryant is, coach at Alabama? I knew guys that played for him. And they said, at Alabama, you were always waiting for the game to come on Saturday so you could take a break because he worked you from Monday till Friday so hard. If you could practice for Bear Bryant, you could beat anybody. Bear Bryant was an old World War II infantryman in New Guinea uh, from Morro Bottom, Arkansas, outside Fordyce, Arkansas, grew up in the Depression, had no shoes, sell vegetables house to house. And his family was part of a religious group that didn't believe in medicine. He lost his father early on, debilitated through, I think it was tuberculosis. And so he knew what he didn't have. And uh, when he found out you could actually get to college through football, he went and played for Alabama, got a scholarship, played college, went to coach college. He was a, just a hard-working guy. And he would take his players, and they told me that what he would do is he would get them in front of them, and he would say, that old voice of his that sounded like the voice of God, you know. He'd say, and also he smoked three packs of pell-mell non-filters every day. Boys, they're all, these 18, 19-year-olds are sitting in front of this World War II veteran. Y'all working hard now. Y'all working real hard. Y'all beat up. You're pushing. You got a standard nobody else in this country's got. But here in a little bit, we're going to put on that red crimson and we're going to put on them shiny white pants and we're going out there and we're going out there in front of a hundred thousand people and we're going to go out there in front of the whole state of Alabama. We're going to go out there in front of NBC and CBS and wide world of sports and everybody's going to watch you. And they're going to shout for everything you're going to do. And we're going to beat people bad in front of their mamas. <laughs> and after the game, all the reporters are going to be back there to talk to you. And your daddy's going to shake your hand in a special way. 
Your mama's going to kiss you in a special way. That little old girlfriend of you is going to snuggle up in a special way. And you're going to go for a job someday, and they're going to look at that red ring with the A on it. And you're going to say, I played for Alabama. Makes me want to go hit somebody right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and that way, that's the way you talk to them. Yeah, we're hurting right now, but the day's coming. The day's coming. It's going to be sweet. Same for us. And so that guy who will sacrifice will find himself. It was a statement that was made in the 1500s. It's a philosopher. He said, birds of a feather flock together. That you're going to attract to yourself. And that's the problem of being an idiot. Is it good, guys? I'm going to hang with you. You're going to hang with fellow idiots. All right. Which is probably why you ain't here this morning. Okay. So let me ask you a question. And I'll give you an illustration in my life. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary named Howard Hendricks. Buddy, did you have him? You didn't have Howie? I had Howie Hendricks. When I was in college, I got saved in 1972. And the, the Christmas time of 72, I went to what was called Solution Bowl down in Dallas, the Royal Coach Inn. There must have been 1,500, 2,000 of us. Back in the late 70s, there was a, in America, there was a big gap. We had lost a lot of confidence in runaway capitalism because everybody got now all the benefits of the post-World War, you know, but still we had great problems that capitalism looked like, you know, it was okay, but it didn't meet your ultimate needs. Is that a revelation to you that money will not make you happy? We start figuring that out. And then we had a whole bunch that rebelled against it and became communist. Che Guevara. And all these guys, they, they felt that this would be a better way, would be communism. And uh, until a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge, a writer in England, got off a train in Kiev looking at communism. Back then, you didn't have television. Radio was just coming around. A lot of things you didn't know. He went to see communism. Got off the train, looked behind the scenes, and he said it was horror what he saw. Stalin had killed 20 million Russians just to get them out of the way. And Muggeridge saw it and started writing, and they got him out of Russia real quick. And he predicted World War II. He said, this will, ultimately, this will bring on a war and what I see over here. Runaway capital, runaway inflation in Germany. A guy steps in to fix it named Hitler. He's watching it. Okay. And so communism in the 70s started sliding away. It didn't work. Anybody hear Vody Bauckham when he came and spoke here? That's where cultural Marxism comes, is that the commie saw it ain't going to work. It's not the rich guys against the poor guys. It's the poor guys against the guys who are behind the rich guys, the white, heterosexual, male, cisgenders. Okay, we got to get rid of them. And ultimately, Christianity. We got to get rid of it. And so they, they saw it. And so in my day, people were questioning capitalism. In my day, they were questioning communism. Guys were looking to be communist, and that wasn't working. And so we tried drugs, not drugs for 
recreational use, but drugs for philosophic purpose. Maybe they would, you could have a cosmic consciousness and you could know what no one else could know. It's kind of substitute for God in the Bible was mescaline. All right. And it failed us. All it did was it brought brain damage. And during that time, we had what was called the Jesus revolution that money, commies, drugs didn't work. And you started seeing college students turn to Christ in great amounts. And I was one of those. And uh, we went to a deal called Solution Bowl. And it meant that we've got the only means to save the world or improve it. You can't change the world because you can't change men. In Christ, you're not told to change the world. You're told to change men. And Christ can do it. Amen. Nobody else can let you be born again and have a mulligan. You can do over through Christ. And so my generation respond enormously in what was called the Jesus Revolution. And so we all showed up at the Royal Coach Inn. And we had a guy for Campus Crusade that got up to speak named Howie Hendricks. Howie was five foot five, maybe, bald-headed, black horn rim glasses, thick. He kind of looked like a large turtle in a lot of ways. All right. Matter of fact, I remember him saying once to a group of pastors that are at the seminary, he said, boys, he was from above New York, from the north. They called him Philly. There's going to be a day a woman's going to come into your study and tell you you're the finest, studliest thing she's ever seen. And he goes, they say it to me too. <laughs> Howie. But I went to this conference, and I sat there with 2,000 other guys, and uh, sitting in the, in the mid-back, and I watched him. Now, I grew up in a matriarchal family, even though we had four boys and daddy. Our mother was Douglas MacArthur, basically. And so it was a matriarchal family. My mother's family was a matriarchal family. And the only men I had seen were pretty profane. <laughs> they were coaches. All right. I had never seen a man of God. Christianity was a woman's sport to me. And I sat there and I watched this guy walk out there and he was not physically impressive, but man, he took charge. He never raised his voice. He never moved from behind the pulpit. This was a, let's see, was he Harvard? I don't know if he was Harvard educated, Wheaton educated. Y'all ever heard of Jim Elliott? He was Howard Hendricks' mentor when he was in college. And Howie was great on ideas of education and of character and of um, motivation and of a true success. And he spoke to men, spoke, taught at a men's school, Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, his daddy was military. And I watched Howie. And he was the smartest guy in the room. And he knew what he believed. And he spoke to what no one else would speak to. On God, right, wrong, life, death, and heaven. He would speak authoritatively to it. And he would do it on the Bible. He had nothing to say outside of the Bible. 
And this was an older, successful, respectable, respected, articulate Dr. Howard Hendricks. And I watched him stand up there and start talking about uh, the king's message. And he didn't change a word. He talked about the king. And we sat there in dead silence because most of us men had not seen this. Most of the girls had not seen this. And he stepped up there. And the next time he spoke, you couldn't save seats in the crowd, but if you got there early enough, you could sit there. They opened the doors 30 minutes early. So I got at the front and I got up there and I sat, as he was speaking, I sat right there. And I'd get there early. And when he would walk out, I would just put my feet out in front and study him. I had never seen anybody quite like this. And he was smarter than all my professors in college. He was smarter than all my coaches. He was, he was a man's man, a short man's man, but a man's man. And uh, I'd look, I looked at his shoes, lace-up black shoes. I looked at his slacks. I looked at his sport coat. I looked at how he tied a Windsor knot. All I had was clip-ons. Are you with me, buddy? <laughs> All he had. He tied a real knot. After that, I never got another clip-on. Right. But I just looked at him and watched him, watched how he communicated. And I remember him saying to us, I wrote it down. He said, spiritually, he said, you guys have got your degrees, but what do you want? You want money? Is that all you want is money? You want to get married? I mean, is that it? You want to have kids? Is that it? Is that all you want in this life is to come and go? He said, what do you want? And then he said, Adam was to subdue the earth. Then he was to cultivate the earth. And then he was to gain dominion. And he said, that's what men have to do. They pull up stuff that shouldn't be there. They cultivate and wait on things that should be there, and then it's theirs. And that's what you're called to do. He said that's what Israel did. It's what Adam did. It's what Paul did. Pulling down speculations raised up against the knowledge of God, taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what you're meant to do. And nothing's going to scratch your itch like that. And then he said, what do you want? And when you lie awake at night and look at the ceiling, he said, what goes through your mind? What do you want? Money ain't going to do it. Commies ain't going to do it. Drug's not going to do it. Christ is going to do it. And then uh, he said, what's it going to take? Knowledge, obedience. It's going to take proven character for you to be able. And, he, and I remember him saying, this was the ultimate thing you could do, is to sit across a table from somebody that doesn't know, and you know what they have to know. And you communicate it to them with integrity. He said, you do that, and you will never go beyond that in satisfaction. He said, you will get paid nothing, and you don't need to get paid. You can do it to anybody. And he said, you will never be out of a job, ever. And that's when I, and I, you know, I would turn around when he was speaking and look behind me, just from my chair, and I would see these college students, the most arrogant human beings in Western civilization, and they were like this. And they were all thinking what I was. If this ain't true, it ought to be. I hope it is. And that's when I said, that's what I want to do. Right after that, I started student teaching at Louisville High School. And I said, that's what I want to do. I didn't have any ideas of being a pastor. 
All right, I want to go for the big money and be a coach. But I knew, I didn't care what I did for a living. And I remember him saying that. It don't matter what you do for a living. Go make your money. Be honest. Make all you can with what you got. And then turn around and make an impact. And I said, that's what I want to do. I want to get over coffee with guys that don't know what I do know and invest my life in them. And I remember the thought going through my mind, I can fail at that. If I fail at that, that's okay. I don't want to succeed anyplace else. I'll fail at that. Amen. Isn't it great to be saved? Thank you, Father, for the epistemological morass that we escaped of lying there and thinking, why am I here? Why am I going to college? Why am I making this money? Why am I getting married? Where do these kids come from? What am I supposed to do with them? We know why we're here. For not one of us, Jesus said, lives for himself and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So then whether we'll ever die, we are the Lord's. Because in some day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we have been given the privilege now of confessing with our mouth the Lord Jesus and bowing before him. And that we can turn around as Andrew went and got Peter, as Philip went and got Nathaniel, as uh, Jesus went and got the woman at the well, that we can go get people. As Paul can walk into Athens and say, y'all listen up. As he can walk into a seminary and say, brethren, listen to me, that we've got something to say. Pray for the guys I've seen at the gym that I talked to over, uh, over a bench press. Talk to the guys, uh, the waitresses at uh, Cracker Barrel I've been able to visit with. Pray for the, the girls at Sonic. Give me my cold drink. Pray for them. Pray for the kids that my kids talk to. What a privilege. Sustain us until you call us home or until we go there. And Father, we'll ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.